Watch Matt Mosley Show, ESPN Central Texas. Joined now uh, by Eric Nadell. And uh, Eric, I, I uh, saw that last night, and I, you know, I just thought, man, who could put this in like the historical perspective? And and uh, I thought immediately of you, the combined World Series no-hitter. I, I had a hard time sort of knowing even how to internalize that or or, uh, or process that because it's just, you know, we think of Don Larson, the name is just etched in everybody's brain, and then you've got a team that goes out there and combines for one. Was that uh, – what were what were your feelings as that thing got down to the end? It's a whole different emotion, isn't it, from a single player getting a no-hitter, a single pitcher? Yeah, it is, Mo, and that's the big thing for me. These combined no-hitters now are coming so often that I almost don't pay any attention to them. And, you know, the fact that it happened in the World Series obviously gives it much greater import. But... I don't know. Somehow to me, it's just not that big a deal when the starting pitcher only goes six innings and then they bring in three guys throwing a hundred miles an hour to pitch an inning each, you know, the whole world has (laughs) changed in terms of how pitchers are used. And I just, I honestly, I don't get that excited about it. Yeah. Well, it, it is funny though, to imagine a team, what five home runs, to turn around and don't get a hit in a game. Uh, In that kind of raucous atmosphere with everything that was going, I don't think that's ever happened, by the way. A team that hit five or more home runs has never turned around and been no hit in in baseball history. Yeah, um, who knows? But the thing is, in, in the World Series, swings like that, happen and I remember the first World Series that I really remember well as a kid is the nineteen sixty World Series, which ended with, you know, arguably the most famous home run uh, in baseball history. Uh, that was Bill Mazeroski hitting a home run in the bottom of the ninth inning to give the Phillies the World Series title four games to three over the Yankees with a ten nine win in a game that swung back and forth several lead changes and that whole World Series was insane. The Yankees lost the World Series despite the fact that they outscored the Pirates by an enormous margin. The three Yankee wins were by scores of 10 to nothing, 16 to 3, and 10 to 1. All four of their losses were close, <laughs> low scoring games, except for that last one, which was a close, high scoring game. Um, and that's really what I thought of as the game was going on last night in terms of the swing from one day to another, because that's what was happening in that first world series that I watched from start to finish, you know, when I was nine years old in 1960 and, you know, you can go back that far to see that sort of crazy stuff happening, but five home runs followed by a no hitter. That's, that's pretty special. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Eric Nadell joining us on the Matt Mosley Show, ESPN Central Texas. Now, Javier started one of these combined no-hitters just like June 25th, so it hadn't been hadn't been that long ago to support your kind of ho-hum uh, at this. And you're right, since it happened at this level, it becomes, well, everybody pays attention. Um, what it, uh, Walk me through Christian Javier, though, his, his start. He goes 97 pitches. And I'm reading where his 
fastball has become maybe the most dominant pitch of the postseason. What was um, what? What has been your kind of take? Because obviously you get to see, especially you're very familiar with these Astros as many times as they as they face the Rangers. What has been your impression of uh, of of watching Javier? Well, I remember when he first came up, and I got a scouting report on him from Steve Sparks, the Astros radio announcer, and he said, "You're not going to believe this guy. He throws this pitch that his teammates call the invisible." You know, and we're laughing, you know, we've heard of the gyro ball and all these crazy things, the invisible. said, what is that? He says it's a fastball that appears to be just average in its velocity, but nobody can hit it. And, you know, it's a combination of his release point, spin rate, and something that we came to know as vertical approach angle. And that's the thing that apparently makes this fastball so special. And we hear it a lot now when we hear um, hitters and hitting coaches talk about opposing pitchers. The vertical approach angle, the fact that the ball is not going down the way that gravity brings a ball down, the way it does on most people's fastballs. For some reason, this guy's fastball is able to stay up. He throws from a lower angle. It's coming in at a completely different angle from other pitchers' fastballs. And the Rangers have seen it now for the last three or four years. They can't hit this guy. Um, his ER career ERA against the Rangers is about two, and he's had a lot of outings against Texas. You know, normally the more you see a guy, the more opportunity you have to catch on to what he's doing and hit him. The Rangers have been totally baffled by this guy. The Yankees have. And, you know, now here he is, you know, on the biggest stage in the world, going through the whole postseason without giving up a run. <laughs> and it's not like he throws 100 miles an hour, you know, or has the greatest wipeout slider or Frambois Valdez's curveball. He just has a fastball that for some reason hitters don't see. They, they used to use the phrase sneaky fast when I started doing this job 40-some-odd years ago. And the yeah. hitters didn't know what that meant. Oh, but they don't know why a guy was sneaky fast. They just know that he was throwing 90 miles an hour, but it seemed to them like it was 100. And they didn't exactly know why. Now we have a much better idea of why because of spin rates and approach angles and things like that. But it's still, it's just an amazing gift when there's a guy who, who has that that special pitch. Yeah, it is. It's wild to see. Uh what about a pitcher like uh, Justin Verlander? Uh, Verl- I mean, I, it's just amazing. Some of these pitchers that are so great that that struggle in the postseason, or especially, and part of it is some guys get more opportunities than others in world in the World Series. Kershaw was a guy that for years it was like, well, the guy just can't pitch in the postseason. What do you make of that as a as a longtime broadcaster when a player is that great? and has achieved such greatness, but for whatever reason, at this, the highest level of the postseason, can't seem to get it done. Yeah, it's tough to explain, Mo. And, you know, I go back to, you know, the Brooklyn Dodgers, you know, the team of my youth, and, you know, some of their great pitchers who had problems in the World Series. Part of it is you're facing great hitters. You know, obviously the teams that get to the World Series Mm -hmm. that get to the postseason. Uh, are are stacked with good hitters. If you make mistakes, you're going to get punished. 
you know, you add to that the fact that it's late in the season and pitchers are pitching with tired arms and, and all that sort of stuff. And that, you know, that's probably a factor as well. You know, I don't think that in the case of a guy like Verlander or a guy like Kershaw, it's a case of trying too hard, you know, which is probably the case with some other pitchers, you know, when they get into big games or big moments. I I don't think it's the case with those guys. You know, and Verlander excelled late in the year when, when he came back, you know, from injury. I think he had three games where he got pulled with a no hitter. You're going back to that whole thing of combined no hitters again. Mm-hmm. You no, know, the Astros were flirting with combined no hitters. It seemed once a week, you know, the whole second half of the season. Um, you know, but why that happens to some guys, I don't know. You know, why did A Rod struggle so many years in the postseason? You know, before before he finally had a good postseason, the year the Yankees won the World Series in 2009. Um, you know, a lot of greater Willie Mays was not very good in the World Series. You know, a friend of mine recently asked me to look up stuff like that. And, you know, there were a lot of great hitters who excelled in the World Series, but there were a lot of great ones who didn't do very well. And Willie Mays, to me, was the greatest player of all time, did not do well in the World Series. Yeah, and uh, Bryce Harper, until last night, has uh, done extremely well. And it it is kind of amazing, uh, you know, in in this postseason – uh, and it's it's amazing when you watch one of those guys things when somebody can put together that electric of a postseason, which is what six home runs now in this postseason. I'm trying to think of Rangers who have had great postseasons, and I, I was thinking about that. Did Nelly? Did Nelly? How many? Did he? How many combined home runs? One started off great in that in that world in that uh, you know uh, first playoff series years and years ago. Uh, and did hit several home runs in that one series, but what what would be the ra- the best Rangers postseason performance ever? Would you say hitting wise? Probably Napoli in 2011. Ah. Uh, in fact, even in the first round of the playoffs, Joe Madden, who was managing Tampa Bay at the time, described it as the year of the Napoli. Yeah, you know he had hit 30 home runs in the regular year and then just tore apart uh, Tampa in the first round of the playoffs. Um, he was about to win the World Series MVP, you know, if, if Nelly had caught that fly ball. Um, I'd have to go back and look at the numbers to see how they compare to, to Cruz's numbers, since Cruz won that ALCS pretty much by himself. Um, but those would be the two that come to mind, both Cruz and Napoli. Eric Nadell joined the Matt Mosley Show, ESPN Central Texas. We're, we're doing you know, Juan those Gonzalez world did have yeah. a series. Sorry, Juan Gonzalez had that first playoff series in '96 against yeah. the Yankees, where he homered in every game. And I think he, I think he hit five home runs in a four-game series. But then the Rangers <laughs> were eliminated, and he didn't get a chance to carry on. <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, I I thought about that one uh, too. W- was calling those World Series games when you look back on all the moments uh, in your career? Is that is that right at the very top like did that did did being involved in calling those games obviously we know how the one we just talked about the 2011 one ended and that was uh uh that was so tough or at least game six ended um was there anything that touches that as far as your career other than going into hall of fame i might say no not at all not at all you know the excitement of calling the aaron judge home run you know, to break Roger Maris record yeah. pretty high up there. But that was, you know, that was a, a single series of games, 
you know, culminating in the record, which was particularly important to me because I saw Roger Maris hit his 61st home run in 1961. And so for me, 60 years later, to have the honor of both seeing and calling the home run that broke the record was really special. But I, I think back and you know, the memory is fading now of what it really felt like to do those World Series games in 2011. But I've been thinking about it a lot this year because, you know, one of my best friends, Scott Pransky, is the radio voice of the Phillies and used yeah. to be our pre and post game guy and grew up in Dallas listening to Mark Holtz and me. Uh, and when he went to Philadelphia in 2007, they immediately, you know, were strong contenders. They won the World Series in 2008, his second year there. They went to the World Series again the following year, but lost to the Yankees. And then they didn't even make the playoffs again, you know, for 13 years until now. And, you know, he's kind of going through that, you know, how much does he even remember about the the feelings that he had, you know, back in 2008 and 2009 when the Phillies won the World Series. I just remember being so excited. You know, I needed to do things, try and calm down before the games. Uh, needed, you know, needed to meditate, needed to listen to calm music, um, things that I normally don't have to do, you yeah. know, before a game to be in the proper mental state to broadcast <laughs> a game. That, that's what really stands out for me when I think back on that 2011 World Series uh, and the excitement of the games themselves. Um, you know, Derek Holland throwing that that shutout and the Rangers winning game two in St. Louis when Kinsler and Elvis made a couple of amazing plays and there were some daring base running and all kinds of stuff that really, uh, that really stood out for the Rangers to win that game in St. Louis and go back to Texas with the series tied one, one. Yeah. That Holland performance still in that spot was the, probably the greatest performance in Rangers history. And that includes what a a perfect game by Kenny Rogers and the no hitters from Nolan and 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 what Nolan did Ricky Henderson you know the the records all that kind of stuff but in in terms of at that at the biggest pitching moment in Rangers history I think I think we have to lean toward Derek don't we Yeah that one single game where you know or you could look at Colby Lewis and all the games that he pitched those two years in the postseason. Um, you know, he really came up big. And then, you know, there too, how do you explain Colby doing that? Yeah, he was an above average pitcher, but he wasn't an all-star. He wasn't a Cy Young winner. You know, and for him to to pitch like that and, and a guy like Verlander struggled, uh, you know, not only this year, but even going back to those series. You know, the Rangers, Rangers did damage against Verlander in those series. Yeah, yeah, they did. I did want to ask you uh, about the hiring of Bruce Bochy. I mean, that's a uh, uh, that, that's really, and it, that brings back more memories of that World Series against the Giants when he was managing. And obviously, he's had such a storied career. Sometimes you think in baseball, well, we won't, you know, that guy won't manage again. But as we saw with Larusa, you can't ever say it's, you know, you know, it's over for sure. And uh, and he comes back in his late sixties. Hopefully, his health is. I think he's feeling better these days. Uh, were you excited when? Uh, and, and obviously, that was a name that came up almost immediately. I think Evan Grant was talking about that. I'm sure you were thinking about that name. What was your what your what was your overall thought though when they went ahead and made that hire? I oh, was well, delighted. You know, very pleasantly surprised that you know that he took the job. 
you know, that he that he wanted to take the job, particularly for a team that's in a rebuilding mode. Um, you know, I figured if if he was going to come back and manage again, it would be a team farther along in the process or a team already, you know, a playoff team. So it surprised me that he would come back and take our job. But uh, apparently he's a guy who likes a challenge, you know, who likes building something. And his relationship with Chris Young was definitely a factor there. So uh, I'm completely delighted. I know that the announcers in San Francisco have nothing but great things to say about Bochi, both as a manager and as a person. And, you know, my, my broadcast day starts every day with a trip into the manager's office to visit with him. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting to know him a little bit. I've met him a couple of times, you know, and talked on the field before a game, but you know, I don't know him at all. And I'm really looking forward to it. How many stations were, have you been on while uh, doing Rangers games over the years? How many radio stations? There was a story that came out today about the demise of our radio station, 103.3 FM ESPN, where Galloway and I and others were on for years, and it kind of detailed some of the things that happened. And, of course, the cell to Cumulus or the LMA. Uh, but it got me to thinking when I was going to talk to you, how many different radio signals or stations have you been on uh, since day one? With the Rangers, well, the, would you would you say flagship station? Yeah, yeah, because there. Well, I, I we started can... on, yeah, we started on WBAP. Although the Rangers uh-huh. were actually on KRLD the first year or two, but that was before I came aboard. Okay, uh, when I came aboard, they had already been on WBAP for several years. Uh, they stayed on WBAP until moving to KRLD uh, when we moved into the new ballpark. And that was in 1994, 95, 95, I guess, was was the year, the first year we switched. Uh, we were on KRLD for a few years there. And then uh, ESPN 103.3 got the rights for a while. Yeah. And in fact, they had the games when we were in the World Series those two years. Yes. Um, we were we were on ESPN. Um, and then we went back to KRLD and then to the fan. So I guess it's four where you've got KRLD, AM and FM, you've got WBAP and you've got uh, ESPN. So there've been four and a a few different times on KRLD. (laughs) Well, we always loved having you on a weekly basis when we had you at 103.3 FM ESPN. And of course, who would have thought that a station that Galloway was on would become a religious station. (laughs) (laughs) so anyway it's hardcore religious talk now no more sports radio on there but uh life goes on uh eric great to great to catch up with you hope you're having uh, uh, a fun off season and uh and and we uh, look forward to talking to you soon all right mo thanks for having me you bet eric nadell the legendary voice of the texas rangers and also a uh loves his music always uh, always uh, coming up with a new artist and hosting concerts and all of that so eric's way into that whole world uh texas singer songwriters and really country but r&b the whole thing all right uh it is time for something we 